Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that your week has been encouraging, the week has been encouraging for you. If you have endured discouragement during the week, I pray that our time of worship this morning, our prayer is that the time of worship has been encouraging to you. During my week away, I was able to do a lot of thinking about the church and its purpose in this world, and as I meditated on those things, God drew my heart to 1 Timothy 3.15. In that verse, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, I write so that you will know how, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And then he says, and I want to draw your attention to these words, he says, the church, which is the church, of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. I, uh, said another way, as believers, then we are part of God's household. As believers, we make up the church of the living God. Now, we shouldn't so quickly read over that statement, but recognize that, that Paul is echoing many Old Testament passages, including Jeremiah 10.10, which says, The Lord is the true God, Yahweh is the true God, He is the living God and the everlasting King. Uh, Jeremiah is declaring that we are God's possession and we are accountable to Him. And as such, we are to live according to His Word. And when we do this, we have to understand that we will come in conflict with human culture. Not just the American culture, the Western culture, but every culture built on human understanding. Beloved, I want you to understand that this conflict begins with the first words of the Bible. Found in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If that's understood, then we know because of man's sin, we know that that is going to come into conflict with man's ideas. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The God of David then, who David wrote Psalm 24.1, David says, basically the same thing. He's the same God of Jeremiah and of Paul. He's the God of Moses as well. In in Psalm 19.1, David declares that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The creation clearly points to its Creator, and the Bible also declares the glory of the Creator. Truly, God as Creator is clearly seen in His creation, and echoed throughout Scripture beginning in Genesis 1.1. The Bible, beloved, couldn't be more clear that God created the world, yet there is great confusion about this truth, even, yes, even in the church. Throughout history, the, the people have observed the world around them and wondered how we came to exist. How we came to exist. I know that when I was young, I had those same questions. How did we come to exist? Well, from the dawn of time, Little boys and little girls have innocently asked their mothers about the origin of babies. Young, adventurous adults have discovered the world for themselves, and a few have even found planets and galaxies of stars. Grizzled old men have argued the theories of origin as they play their games of choice in the town square. From the beginning, people have observed this confusing world that we live in and have decided how they think it came to be. But have you ever stopped to think? Why isn't the answer apparent to all? Why isn't it? Even today, scientists devote their lives to discovering the origins of life. That Their search, have ta- search have, has taken them to the depths of space to find any clue of our beginning, no matter how 
small or how far their, their journeys of discovery give us, and we can't deny, give us rich and fascinating insights into our world, yet most of these scientists, most of those who explore worlds uh, are as confused as they were tugging on their mother's skirt. Just as confused. And the reason is, is they've been told a lie. They've been, they have bought into the world's greatest lie, actually. This lie, I would argue, was the first shot in an ongoing cosmic battle for the souls of men and continues to be told to young and old today, and they continue to believe it. Over these next few weeks, we're going to take the time to study Genesis 1 through 3 and discover the glory of the Creator and the extraordinary beauty of His creation. Now, I have titled this series, The Battle from the beginning. Now, you may realize that several years ago, John MacArthur preached a series called The Battle for the Beginning. Well, this is the battle from the beginning. From the dawn of time, from the beginning of history, there has been this ongoing battle. It's a battle for supremacy and authority. And as Christians, we have received the call of Christ, our captain. He, calls, he has called us to put on the armor of God, which, by the way, includes the belt of truth. He has given us the truth about our origins and the history of the world, our history in Genesis 1-3. through And He has designed, as I said earlier, He has designed the church, His church, to be the pillar and the support of the truth. Yet many believe that the truth of our origin is unclear and is a secondary doctrine. Therefore, they don't want to make a strong commitment one way or the other. To make matters worse, modern science stands in direct opposition to Genesis 1 through 3 when interpreted as an historical account of our origin. Many Christians fear then standing firm because they don't want to appear foolish. And that's the truth. That's the truth. And maybe some of you are in that boat right now, not wanting to appear foolish to the world. So, therefore, because they don't want to be foolish, or to be seen as foolish, they ignore Genesis 1-3, through 3, or they try to fit it neatly within an evolutionary framework. I mean, that's what they do. But we must ask the following questions. We must ask the question. Is the doctrine of our beginnings unimportant and even potentially divisive? Second question is, how does our interpretation of Genesis 1-3 through affect our understanding of the entire biblical accounts? Believe me, it does, by the way. Third question, are we foolish to believe the the history of the creation account? And the other question, the last question, and there's more than this, but the last question I'm posing is, can we interpret the Scripture to allow for a modern understanding of science? Now, during the past two summers, we have set aside the time to consider big topics within the church. In 2020, we considered the Word of God by looking at the doctrine of Scripture. Last year, last summer, we studied the kingdom of God and its implications. This year, we're going to look at the doctrine of creation from Genesis 1 through 3. Now, we're going to preach this this, uh, text thematically. This week, we'll set up the battle by looking at some introductory matters related to Genesis 1-1. Next week, Bay has has graciously uh, chosen to take us through chapter 1 by looking at the forming and filling of God's creation. 
And in two weeks, my prayer is, is that Keith Kemp will preach, and he will look at the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26-28, and in Genesis 2. Then we're going to take a breather and pick back up after that, one-week breather. We'll pick up with God's purpose for creation before considering the rebellion and then the ultimate redemption of man. So that, in a nutshell, is the series, and I pray that it will answer many of your questions and give you great confidence uh, in the Word of God from its beginning to its end. And I believe me, they're tied together. So with that, let me pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would be with me as I preach your word, as I proclaim your truth. Lord, I pray that I would not be the centerpiece, but that you would be. That we would come to see even more that you are high and lofty and one to be praised. Yet you have shown mercy to us and have shown grace. Father, we pray that we would see those things clearly this morning in Christ's name. Amen. In July 1925, in the little town of Dayton, Tennessee, the so-called Scopes Trial, Scopes Monkey Trial as it's called, took place as the nation tuned in via radio and the world via telegraph. The ACLU in New York City had pushed for the trial as a test case for anti-evolution bills introduced by the legislatures of 20 states in the early 1920s. These bills outlawed public schools teaching the evolution of man from a lower order of animals. The ACLU placed ads in Tennessee papers looking for a teacher willing to stand trial for teaching, for teaching evolution in the public schools. A man named John Scopes, a young teacher and football coach at Ray County High School, reluctantly agreed to be prosecuted in this test case. Interesting, interestingly, Scopes had no background in science and had little interest or understanding of evolution. He had been a substitute biology teacher for two weeks and used a textbook that taught man evolved from the lower animals. Sadly, the book also taught racism. Just listen to this quote from the book. At the present time, there exist upon the earth five races or varieties of man, the highest type of all, the Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. That book called Civic Biology by George William Hunter. Now, this clearly racist understanding of race was built upon the foundation of evolutionary teaching. Now, the popular Christian lawyer and Democrat, William Jennings Bryant, served as the head of the prosecution. Bryant, who served as Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson, was considered a conservative Christian even though his political views were liberal for his time. The ACLU, for its part, chose the famous criminal lawyer and outspoken atheist and agnostic Clarence Darrow to head the defense. Now, Darrow was an amazingly successful criminal lawyer, and he was a, but he was also an agnostic who believed that man's actions are just the result of body chemistry. He believed concepts of good and evil were essentially meaningless. In his autobiography, The Story of My Life, Darrow explained his purpose for participating in the Scopes trial. He says this, my object and my only object was to focus the attention of the country on the program 
of Mr. Bryan and the other fundamentalists in America, end quote. Now, Bryan and Darrow's main issue during this trial was whether evolution should be taught as fact in public schools. Darrow used the trial to attack the Bible directly and Christianity as well. In the words of Dr. David Minton and Ken Ham, they say that Clarence Darrow's anti-Christian hostility was so intense that there was, a, there was fear on the part of liberal theologians and organizations that supported his evolutionary views that he might turn popular opinion even against them, end quote. Now, on the seventh day of the trial, Darrow brazenly challenged Brian to testify as an expert witness on the Bible. Now, William Jennings Bryan confidently took the baits, hook, line, and sinker. He agreed to this unorthodox arrangement. See, he was the, he was the, the lawyer. He agreed to this unorthodox arraignment, arrangement even against the advice of his co-counsel. Now, during the questioning, Darrow recounted several miracles of the Old Testament, such as Eve's encounter with the serpent, the flood, the Tower of Babel, uh, time standing still, still, the whale swallowing Jonah, and he also attacked the doctrine of inspiration. He ridiculed Brian for his belief and defense of these miracles. Now, for the most part, Brian stuck with, stuck with the clear words of Scripture in his testimony, forcing Darrow to openly deny the Word of God. But the turning point of the trial came as Darrow's questioning progressed. When Darrow asked, does the statement, the morning and the evening were the first day, and the morning and the evening were the second day, mean anything? That's what Darrow asked to you. Brian answered, I do not see that there is any necessity for constructing the words the evening and the morning as meaning necessarily a 24-hour day. When Darrow asked the question, so creation might have been going on for a very long time. Brian answered, it might have continued for millions of years. You see, Brian was unwilling to compromise on man's evolution from lower animal forms, but he had already compromised on the days of creation. He had already compromised on the clear teaching of Genesis 1-3. through You see, Darrell managed to get Brian to confess in the hearing of an international audience that he could not defend the Bible's history and that he didn't believe Genesis 1-11 through as written and that he accepted modern science's teaching of an old earth. In the words of Dr. David Mitten and, and Ken Ham, Brian unwittingly had undermined biblical authority and paved the way for secular philosophy to pervade the, the culture and the education system, end quote. Now, I wonder, this is me wondering out loud, if, if Brian chose to testify as an attempt to compromise in trying to fit millions of years into the Genesis narrative, but whether you believe that Brian was an unwitting participant or this was an attempt to compromise, one thing is for certain. The roots of the compromise had come from within the church itself. The historicity of Genesis 1-11 through had been debated within the church for many years prior. So when Brian said that creation may have taken millions of years, he was simply restating the view of many in the church a view that is called uniformitarianism. I'll get it out in a minute. This is the view that the earth we see today is the result of gradual change over a long period of time. Now, over the, the, those 
preceding centuries, theologians then had been working to compromise with modern science, which had more and more uh, postulated that there was a, a, an old earth view. This, but this undermined the authority of Scripture in the church and has led to even, an even greater compromise. This series is not an attempt to be our argumentative. I can assure you that. It's not a, an attempt to be argumentative, but to uphold what God's Word says, the truth of God's Word. As I said in my opening remarks, the church, beloved, you and I, the church, Grace Bible Church, and other like-minded churches like us uh, are the, the pillar and the support of the truth, so we need to get these things right. As such, we need to answer the following question. Is Genesis 1-11 through the history of human origin, or are there other viable options? And I would argue that we cannot, we cannot shrug off this question because it will hit us flat in the face, whichever way you go. In the words of Abner Chow, before shrugging off these ideas, we need to understand that these issues are important. Do we really want to misrepresent what God has said? The Lord has demanded careful handling of His Word. False teachers are those who twist Scripture to their own destruction, and we do not want to fall anywhere in that camp. Thus, we should never handle accusations that we have misconstrued God's intent and, never, and He never claimed His words to be historical. We shouldn't take that lightly. They should spur us on to take a serious look at the text and to make sure, thus saith the Lord, end quote. So we're going to be, begin this series to answer some of these questions considering the following proposition. When considering Genesis, you probably fall into one of three major camps. Either you believe Genesis is deceptive or deceptive history, or you believe, the second, that's the first camp, the second camp is you believe that Genesis is debatable history. Or the third camp is you believe that Genesis is definite history. Let's look at the first major camp. Some believe that Genesis is deceptive history. The question is, does creation point to a creator? I hope that, I hope, genuinely hope that none of you are in this camp. This camp is filled with atheists and agnostics. I, I bring up this group of people because they have had a huge impact on how modern science views human origin, and I would argue they've had a huge impact in the church and how we view Scripture and how we view our origins. In Psalm 19, verse 1, David says, the heavens are telling the glory of, of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth, forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, we can clearly see According to David, we can clearly see God's glory, the glory of God in His creation. All we have to do is look around us. Just look into a microscope and, and you'll see a glimpse of a world unknown to us. Look into a, a telescope and see far away places we can never touch. Uh, we can look at the bottom of the sea and see life that no man knows. And it goes on and on. The vegetation, the trees which tower hundreds of feet. Uh, the sun that's too bright to look into directly, the moon reflecting the sun's light, the expanse of stars that are too many to count, but God counts them, right? We see the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, 
the swarming insects like lightning bugs or fireflies and some people, what some people call them. Whatever you call them, they're amazing, right? We look into a baby's crib. We look into the eyes of a child. We, we look at the gray hair of the elderly. All these things declare the glory of their creator. The, the days and the years and the seasons declare the majesty of the one who set them in motion. So the question is, why do they deny the creator when it's so obvious When you can look at creation and see the glory of the Creator, why do they deny the Creator? Well, they they look at these things and they say they couldn't have come from an omnipotent Creator. There must be another answer. But the question is why? For that answer, turn to Romans 1.18. Turn to Romans 1.18. Now, I think this is, beloved, important that we get this. In Romans 1, 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, the simple truth is that there are many people that suppress the truth in what? In unrighteousness. They suppress the truth that God has clearly revealed to them. You see, God has clearly revealed Himself in creation, but they resist and they oppose God by holding on to their sin, by, by pressing down on what's been revealed and, and holding on to their sin. You see, they want to continue in their sin, therefore they suppress the truth of the Creator. In other words, if God doesn't exist, then they're not accountable to Him. And that's very important to understand, and that's very important to understand as you're considering what's being said. Look at 119. Because that which was known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Said another way, their conscience tells them that God exists. There are no atheists. There are no atheists. You see, they have God's divine law written on their hearts. That's Romans 2.14. Now, Paul sums this up in Romans 1.20. When he says this, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which that through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. See, they have no excuse because they can see the glory of the Creator through the creation. We can't see God directly, but but he has been made he has made eternal power his eternal power and divine nature evident through his creation therefore anyone who denies god is without excuse anyone who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness is without excuse verse 21 for even though they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. You see, God had revealed Himself and man knows that God exists. Man knows that God is full of glory. Man knows that God is to be honored. Yet they did not honor Him, verse 21, did not honor Him or give thanks. Look at verse 24. Therefore, oh, don't don't miss verse 22 and 23, professing to be wise, they became fools. They became fools. And then verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. You see, God abandons them to their sins. 
He removes his restraint so that sin can run its course and have its result. Now, I will leave the result of that to you to read in Romans 1, 25-32. In those verses, he gives an absolute laundry list of sins that characterize even our current culture. Those in this camp of denial say that Genesis is a myth. They say that Genesis is legend or even just downright false and should be ignored. They look at the text and fully deny that God created this world. They even deny his existence. They point to natural processes and say that we evolved from molecules to man over millions of years, and in doing so, they are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. They deny Genesis 1-11, through They deny it being God's infallible word. Therefore, they deny that God created the world and all it contains. They deny that he created man. They deny the existence of sin and sin's consequences. They deny the reality of judgment. They deny the origin of the nations. And they deny the truth of a coming redeemer or Messiah. So here's what you need to come to grips with as we consider this series. We live in a world that reveres modern science. And there's no de- denying, there's absolutely no denying that, God, that science has advanced mankind in many ways. It has provided us, provided us with incredible conveniences. Most of you have smartphones. These handheld computers are tied to a vast knowledge pool. Your, your grandparents, in many cases, could not have imagined this ever to happen in their lifetime. Some of you couldn't imagine. I know that I couldn't imagine seeing what I see today. The, the, the medical advances have been almost miraculous in nature. Not miraculous, but almost miraculous in nature. I mean, it's amazing what's happened. Friends, it is easy to see the incredible scientific advances, and especially living in a city like Gainesville that is so in, involved in the scientific and medical community. It's easy to see these scientific advances and forget that many, many people, many folks in the science community absolutely deny the Creator and they're, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Therefore, they're, they're look, actively looking for ways to prove that God does not exist. Therefore, God has given them over in the lust of their heart to impurity. You've heard, you probably, many of you grew up with Bill Nye, the, the science guy, over the past few years, he's become the mouthpiece for this camp. In one video called Creationism is Not Appropriate for Children, he says evolution is the fundamental idea in all life science and all biology. It's very analogous to trying to do geology without believing in tectonic plates. You, you're just not going to get the right answer. Your whole world is just going to be a mystery instead of an exciting place, end quote. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, the thought of sin, suffering, and death continuing to reign unchecked and undefeated does not excite me. The world is not an exciting place in that way. Bill Nye goes on to say, this is, he's after your children, by the way, and he's gotten some of them. I say to the grown-ups, If you want to deny evolution and live in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we have observed in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters 
by the way, so if you believe in a, in a six-day creation, you believe God created the world and all it contains, you believe Psalm 24.1, by the way, you are illiterate. That's, that's what he says. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need engineers that can build stuff and solve problems, end quote. So if you're, an, if you're a Christian, according to Bill Nye, and you believe in a, in, in, in a six-day creation, then you can't be an engineer that can build stuff and solve problems. You can't be a voter who votes liter, uh, literately. You can't be a taxpayer that knows what's going on. You, you can't. Ultimately, they want to make disciples who think and act according to their desires. They want a world without a creator, and get this, Therefore, they want a world without judgment for sin. That's what they want. And you have to come to grips with that as you consider modern science. And again, I'm not against modern science in the sense of uh, true discovery. Now, let me tie Romans 1, 8, 1 to this. In another video, Bill Nye answers the question, does homosexuality make evolutionary sense? He states, I don't know about you, but I've I've known a great many gay men who are married, who have babies, who have kids. So being somewhere on the spectrum of heterosexual with homosexual is not genetically lethal. You can still have kids anyway. End quote. Doesn't even make sense. Doesn't even make scientific sense. Oh, by the way, I mean, he's, a, he's an engineer. So am I, so. But, and yet another video on called Bill Nye on sexu Sexuality and Gender Spectrum, he states, for those who insist every, everyone pick uh, an M or an F, male or female, we have to listen to the science, and the science says we're all on a spectrum. Our labels, our fashions, even our washrooms are still catching up to that truth, end quote. That's the camp that denies the Creator. Church, I'm thankful for the blessings God has given us through science, medicine, math, engineering, we need more Christians involved in those fields. Well, we, we cannot fall for the lies propagated through the science community. We can't because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's clear the connection. We need believers who practice science in light of the truths of Scripture and in light of the truths of Genesis 1-11. through Let's look at the second major camp. You're, you believe Genesis is a debatable history. You believe it's debatable history. We, it's clear that where these people are, the, the, the former camp, the first camp. Now let's look at the second camp, which may be a little scarier. Most believers know better than to completely deny God and will not deny that God created the world and all it contains. They, they take seriously David's charge that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So that they're, they're not in that camp. Yet... There are many in the church who will deny Genesis 1-11 through are historical. As such, they embrace Genesis 1-11 through as theological in nature, but stop short of saying that it is actual human history and world history. These folks don't want to be looked upon as backwards. And this is, this is what's going on. They don't want to be looked upon as backwards, so they attempt to find ways to adapt Scripture to what they would see as current scientific knowledge. But what they don't understand is and don't recognize is that our understanding of science is, all, is always evolving, right? It's, I mean, they would say it's advancing, but I would say it's evolving. No, no pun intended. 
While science is always changing and adapting, what we have to understand is the Word of God is unchanging and endures forever. It doesn't, the Word of God doesn't change. Peter says that in, P, in 1 Peter one twenty five. Isaiah says it in Isaiah 48. Therefore, therefore, we cannot interpret the Word of God through the lens of science. Let me say that again. We cannot interpret the Word of God through the lens of science. We must then interpret science through the lens of Scripture. I hope that's not shocking. We have to remember that evolutionary theory and creation rely on, both both evolutionary theory and creation rely on quote-unquote unobserved events that are non-repeatable in nature. You can't observe them. You can't experiment with them. So we have to trust the one who was there. So if God said this is how he did it, thus saith the Lord, then we need to trust that that's what he truly did. Let me just say, for example, through careful study, scientists may figure out how the eyeball functions. But this knowledge is far different from than knowing how the eyeball was made. It's different. One is observable, one is not. Now, I recognize that there are those who, who argue that belief in a six-day creation in a young earth is not essential for salvation. I, I, I realize that. And there, there is a small sense that I agree with that. A small sense. With a lot of caveats. Now, my, my, own, my own testimony is helpful to explain. I grew, up on the outside, I grew up on the outside fringes of the church. I had some understanding of the Bible. And I, and I would have said that God created the world. But I also had many influences in school. When I took 10th grade biology, the teacher instructed from a textbook that taught life began millions of years ago. I was fascinated with that story, the story of life evolving from a pond to living on land to breathing air. I didn't quite understand it all, but I, I, was, I, was, I was fascinated by it. Eventually, in the story, different forms evolved from that early life. And, and, but, but the problem was that there were still a lot of unanswered questions for me. I, didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't put it all together. It was an incomplete for me. I actually, I think, believed the Bible was true because I'd been told that it was true, but I had no idea how to square evolution with the biblical account of creation. Now, many years later, a man shared the gospel with me, and I truly believed in Christ. My eyes were opened for the first time. At that time, at that very moment of salvation, I, when, I, when I became a believer, I do believe that I, I, did, I did believe in evolution at that point. I was truly a Christian, but I had not changed my scientific view. But I did see God as the holy creator. It's just that I hadn't aligned those two thoughts yet. Now, let me leave the rest of that story for just a moment. I'll tell you, that part of my te- I tell you part of my testimony because I want you to know that I agree with a lot of caveats that a full understanding of the biblical account of creation is not necessary for salvation. But there is a major caution, a major caution. Now, I won't give you that just yet. So how do they square the Bible with the theory of evolution? There are a few ways, I say they, those, those in the church who try to do this, uh, they, there are a few ways that they do, do this. First, there are popular, a few popular theories in the church uh, that, that are used to square, square evolution with the Bible. The first was the one I used when I first challenged, when I was first challenged with the biblical account. 
That's called the day-age theory. The idea that days, the days of Genesis 1 are figuratively, figurative and, and represent vast geological age. See, people in, who, who, take this, who take this view uh, don't believe that Moses intend to, intended to communicate a 24-hour day as measured by the rotation of the earth. They point out that the Hebrew word for day, yom, can have other meanings. They appeal to Psalm 90, verse 10, as an example of the word, using the word at, to mean an indefinite period of time. I think that's a stretch, by the way. It says, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 years. So it's indefinite, the idea of indefiniteness. They also point to, this is probably their main text, Second Peter 3, 8, which says, but do not let one fact escape your notice, beloved, that, but that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. You see, they use this verse to show that the word for day can be used to depict or stretched, a stretched or a longer period of time than, than a 24-hour day. They also try to say that too many things happened on day six of creation, which included Adam's naming of thousands of animals, the, his perception of loneliness, and a, the subsequent creation of Eve. So all that occurred in a 24-hour day on day six, and so they struggle with that. The day-age theory, though, does not stand up to biblical scrutiny. Now back to my testimony, I said I would finish it out. When I shared with my mentor, the one who shared the gospel with me, that I believed that the earth was millions of years ago, this was several months later after I'd become a Christian, uh, I shared with him, oh, the earth is millions of years old. He said, no, the Bible teaches that the, the, the earth was created in six days only probably thousands of years ago. And I said, well, as you probably have heard people say, Maybe you've said this yourself. Well, a day could mean a longer period of time. And he said, well, turn, turn over to Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and read it. So I want you to turn to Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and I want you to read it. Now, as you read it, I want you to keep in mind that it's the same author, Moses, writing to the same audience. So Moses wrote Genesis 1. Moses wrote Exodus 20. Now these are the words of the Lord. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, here's the question. When he says six days you shall labor and do all your work, do you believe that Moses is describing a 24-hour day or is he describing a longer period? Of course, in that context, he is describing a 24-hour day. Nobody would dispute that uh, unless you're a, a major hard worker. I mean, you work, you work your tail off. Okay? So, of course he meant a 24-hour day. Now, he goes on to say, four and six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the earth and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, exegetically, it makes absolutely no sense for Moses to shift the meaning in the middle of his thought. It makes no sense. If he was doing that, if he was shifting and saying, in principle, this is how it looks, but this is what God did, but you know, he, he used a lot longer time. He doesn't do that. 
He uses the same word. He doesn't shift the meaning. Therefore, he meant a 24-hour day at the beginning of the verse, and therefore he meant a 24-hour day at the end of the verse. Now, next week, I don't have time to get into this, but next week, Vey, I think, is going to show us that the text of Genesis 1 doesn't allow this idea either. Now, earlier I said there's a caution to saying that we don't need to believe in a biblical creation to believe the gospel. There's a major caution. I would argue it's only a matter of sequence. They may not believe or understand it before they embrace the truth of the cross. But that doesn't mean we don't need to teach it. Because I would argue that, the, that and we're going to see later, that the cross is only rightly understood when we understand creation. Now, the second, second use theory they use is called the gap theory. The gap theory is the second way uh, that they, they try to square the, the Bible with notions of science. It's, it's that the, the, the theory is that vast geological ages occurred before Genesis 1 through, through 3, and that the rest of Genesis 1 is an account of a recreation in six literal days on the geological ruins of the previous destroy, previously destroyed earth. Proponents of the gap theory believe that a gap exists between 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, that God made the world and then something happened that caused it to become, so they, that word, there's a, there's a verb there that they say it means to become without form and, and void. Now, this gap in their minds could have been a very long uh, duration, even millions of years. Now, they would say that during this gap, so-called prehistoric creatures lived and died. That's important that we know that, understand that. They also believe that Lucifer was in charge of this gap world and when he fell from grace and that God destroyed it in a what's called a Luciferian flood. Now after this, God remade the world in six literal 24-hour days as outlined in Genesis 1. Now this theory is problematic for several reasons, including that Genesis 28-11 through 11 wouldn't fit with a longer period of time. I, I, I don't see that. But also, I think more uh, difficult for the, for the people who hold this is that the Hebrew grammar of the first two verses don't support a long period of time. But I think even worse for them would be attributing a fossil record, which fossils mean death, right? You, you have to have something die in order for it to be a fossil. That attributing the fossil record to an event prior to the rest of Genesis 1 means that disease and death would have occurred prior to those events right? But God said that his creation was very good in Genesis 131. And he also, but the Bible also, scripture also teaches that sin and death came after the fall in Genesis 3. So there's a problem here. If you have death and sin, or if you have death that, that happens prior, where did that death come from? Because God clearly ties sin and death together. Problematic. But quite possibly, there's, there's two threats, the, the, the day age theory and the gap theory. But quite possibly, the greatest threat comes from those who take Genesis 1-11 through 11 as mythological and not historical. So, as I have said, there are those in the church who say that the early chapters of Genesis are not, are not historical, but they're merely theological in nature. These folks contend that the author of Genesis, Moses, didn't intend to commu communicate the actual events of history. Therefore, he used stories to communicate 
theological truths about man and the world around him. Now, these stories were not used then to show us how we were made. They simply give us the purpose and the nature of our existence. Instead of showing us how the world and man were formed, the text gives us the function of man in this world. In his book, What Happened in Creation or in the Garden, Abner Chow attributes the following uh, to the Old Testament scholar John Walton. He says this, Just as we do not believe a parable necessarily happened in history, we should not think that Genesis 1 through 3 occurred in the past, end quote. Some biblical scholars, including John Walton, point to parallels. Well, I shouldn't say John Walton. I shouldn't attribute to this. Some, some biblical scholars, though, point to parallels with ancient Near Eastern myths that Moses' audience would have been familiar with. They point out that these stories don't focus on material origins. Instead, they focus on the function of the world around us instead of its formation. Therefore, reading Genesis 1-3, through according to those who take this view, as history would be foreign to that original audience. As such, the, the writer could not have intended to communicate history. Some, some scholars take this a step further. You see, traditionally, we, we interpret Scripture by giving weight to the historical nature. So we know that the text occurred in time and history, and so we interpret Scripture based on the, based on the fact that it, it occurred in time. Uh, we can, that these scholars contend that the, the traditional historical grammatical hermeneutic cannot be applied to Genesis 1-11. through They believe that God communicated theological ideas through stories, through culture, through the language of the audience. And these stories were a way to communicate theological truth, but they were never meant to be taken as truth. The stories, that is. So our hermeneutical practice then, according to these scholars, must separate the stories from the timeless or eternal truths they intend to communicate. Now in doing this, the church then gives the authorities on matters of history, the authority on matters of history and origin to, the, to modern science. You might say, well, wait a minute, that's a, big, that's a big leap. Well, let me show you. In the words of William Lane Craig, who is a well-known Christian apologist who has argued for the historicity of the, the resurrection of Christ. So he gets that right. But he says this, my claim is that when you do a sensitive analysis of Genesis 1-11, through it suggests that we're not dealing with a straightforward historical narrative, but with mytho-history. I think the narratives of Genesis 1, given their genre, leave open as to how God created Adam and Eve, and that makes it, wait for it, that makes it a scientific question. End quote. Understand. Right there, he's giving up authority to the scientific community. By the way, the ones that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, yeah, those? You know, I might remind William Lane Craig that science would disprove the resurrection of Jesus as well, by the way. I mean, if you're going to go that route, then he's just completely tearing down everything. He goes on to say, it's perfectly possible scientifically that Adam and Eve were de novo, de novo creations out of inanimate materials rather than out of pre-existing hominins. But given that we're dealing here with a mytho-history, I'm not confident that that's true. In fact, quite the opposite. 
I think that the creation of Eve out of Adam's rib is almost undeniably figurative language rather than describing an actual surgery that took place with his rib floating in the air and then being formed into a woman and even God's creating Adam out of dirt and then blowing into his nose again seems to be very, very anthropomorphic and figurative, end quote. William Lane Craig. According to Craig, the author wrote the early chapters of Genesis in figurative language to convey theological truth. As such, they cannot, those chapters cannot be trusted to convey the history of our origins. Now, I want to be fair to Craig and give a little bit, a little bit more insight into his view. I've included in the handout, if you've got the handout, I've included some extended quotes, but I, let, me, let me attempt to summarize his thoughts. Craig believes that God most likely used a pre-existing non-human form which was not made in the image of God as the stuff out of which he created the first human beings. In his mind, God probably caused a genetic mutation and infused a rational soul into them. He says that this is a miraculous intervention by God that would never have occurred naturalistically if left to its own devices. So he's upholding miracles, but he's just changing the way, he's changing the way and, and trying to, to involve the millions of years and, and the thought that's out there in modern science. Now, I, wanna, I, wanna, I do want to quote one more quote from him because I think it's important. He says this, I hope that our listeners, he was, so this, was a, this was an interview, I hope that our listeners who are young earth creationists today don't take the easy way out of accusing me of anti-supernaturalism and being against miracles because that would be a gross misrepresentation of my position. Of course God can do these things. My claim is that when you do a sensitive analysis of Genesis 1-11, through it suggests that we're not dealing here with a straightforward historical narrative but with a mytho-history, end quote. So he's trying to hold on to one thing but he's giving up everything else. That's the point. Again, there's some more quotes in, in your handout, and you, can, and you can also look at these, look up these um, on, on YouTube, these interviews. Church, many of the challenges with interpreting the biblical narrative considering current scholarship have been solved. I mean, they have been. Many, many women are currently devoting their lives to studying science with a biblical worldview. You may be aware of two organizations, Answers in Genesis and and Institution of Creation Research. They have produced first-class academic work in the fields of science. In in the words of John Morris, who's the president of ICR, he says, this is a wonderful time to be a Bible-believing Christian or creationist that the scientific evidence rightly interpreted overwhelmingly supports the straightforward reading of Scripture. Even in those areas of seeming conflict, research continually sheds new light, increasing our confidence in Scripture. And then he says this, the same thing I said earlier. I call on my Christian semi-creationist brothers, those who hold to the Big Bang or or to the old earth or theistic evolution to join the ranks of those who are trying to solve the remaining conflicts from a God-honoring, Bible-upholding perspective. For in the end, Scripture will stand. The Word of the Lord endures forever. Rightly observed and interpreted, there can be no conflict between science and Scripture. End quote. I would join John Morris in this town that so reveres science 
I would join John Morris in saying and encouraging you, if you're involved in the scientific community, community to, to research material from these organizations to help you form a view of science informed by a biblical worldview. You have to recognize that most in the scientific community are actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want to know the truth, and they don't want you to know the truth. Therefore, their scholarship cannot be trusted. You can't just read it and just say, yeah, this is right, without, without fully vetting it through the truth of Scripture. You need to stand in the camp, in the camp of, biblical, of the biblical authors in believing, the last point, in believing that Genesis is definite history. Let me start this by, by quoting Abner Chow. History is the vehicle by which theological truth comes into our world and impacts our lives. Far from separating history from theology, the Bible seems to tie them inextricably together, end quote. We have clearly shown that Moses and David agree with Chow's statement. That's how they write. Isaiah and the other prophets would certainly join the Old Testament chorus of those who affirm the historical nature of of the creation account. I would submit that the writers of the New Testament also agree with Chow's assertion. Let me give you three quick witnesses. This goes quickly. The Apostle Paul believed that Genesis 1-11 is definite history. Turn to Acts 17-24. This is the account of Paul in Athens in the midst of the Areopagus. Acts 17-24 Paul writes, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. With that simple statement, as Paul presents the gospel to these men in Athens, with that simple statement, Paul affirmed a belief that God created the world. You may say that this doesn't prove that he believes the creation account is history, but look at Acts 17.26, and he made from one man, from one man, every nation of mankind to live all, on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Clearly that one man is Adam. Is Adam, who God created on the sixth day of creation according to Genesis 1-2. through to two. Therefore, or furthermore, Paul's doctrine of original sin and death rests fully upon the historical nature of the creation account. In Romans 5, 12-14, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Where did he get that? Genesis chapter 3. He goes on, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Where do you get that? Genesis 1 through 11. It says the same, much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 21, and 22. The Apostle Paul believed that Genesis 1 through 11 is definite history. Peter, the Apostle, also believed it is definite history. If you want to turn to 2 Peter 2 4, in that section, Peter is proving that God will judge the false teachers, and I think this is very informative. 
that Peter is proving that, that God will judge the, the false teachers who are secretly introducing destructive heresies, even denying the Master, the Lord Jesus. In 2 Peter 2, 4-5, through 5, he says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the earth, upon the world of the ungodly. See, here Peter's affirming his belief that Noah and his family existed, and that God judged the ancient world with a flood. If you skip down to 2 Peter 3, 3-6, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was, just as it was from the beginning of creation. Stop right there. The false teachers were basing their argument against the second coming on the theory of uniformitarianism. That all things continue the same. As I said earlier, this theory says that the world has operated uniformly since the beginning. Folks, there's absolutely nothing new under the sun. They're saying God won't judge because He hasn't judged. Peter goes on to say, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago. What's he referring to? And God said, Genesis 1, verse 3a, the first part of that verse, and God said, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Where did, Paul, where did Peter get the idea that the world's going to be destroyed by, or was destroyed by water? Genesis 6 through 9. Therefore, the world is accountable to God, and he will judge the evildoers. I'll give you one last witness. So, Paul believes it. It's a definite history. Peter believes this definite history. Jesus believes this definite history. Turn to Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Beloved, I hope this is game, set, match. We don't even really have to preach the rest of the series. Jesus says, Matthew 19, 4, and He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here Jesus is quoting Genesis 1.27, which is the image of, of God and man, and Genesis 2.24. In other words, he's using Old Testament Scripture as authoritative to, 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 to settle a dispute about divorce, and he's grounding his answer in the creation of man and the purpose of marriage given in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Let me give you one more. In Luke 11, if you want to turn there, verse 49 through 51. He 
He says, for this reason also the wisdom of God has, God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. Then he says this, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who is Abel? Genesis chapter 4, right? Son of Adam and Eve. Killed by Cain. That Abel. Jesus believed in that Abel. From the foundation of the world. Clearly, Jesus believes in the Genesis account of creation. I gave you three witnesses, but I could have easily given you more. I could easily give you John, who based the structure of the first chapter of his gospel in Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then he says this, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, they, Paul's word suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in Colossians 1. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will, have, will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Then he says this, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Beloved, we cannot separate the gospel from a biblical understanding of the creator and his creation. Paul doesn't do it. Peter doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't do it. The Bible doesn't do it. It's, it. It doesn't. You need to recognize that the Old Testament, New Testament writers, along with Jesus, understood the cross in light of God's creation. You can't understand what happened at the cross unless you understand that God created the world and everything in it. And He is, we are accountable to Him. So I, I ask, which camp are you in? The camp of denial, that it's deceitful history, the, the camp that it's debatable, or the camp that it's definite? I stand firmly with my Lord. I hope you do as well. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you in the preaching of this sermon, if you have any questions, if you're convicted to deal with something, please contact me or one of uh, a bay or, or a mature Christian who can help you. We pray as we transition to communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. It's early afternoon now. We pray that you were, are glorified by the words of this sermon, 
Father, I pray that it sets the tone for the rest of this series and sets the tone for this church in understanding a biblical creation. Father, we pray that you be glorified in all the world, that your glory would fill the earth. In Christ's name, amen.